I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello, it's the Wong Takes. It is not a Tuesday, it is most definitely not a Tuesday, but it is a Saturday, January 6th, 2018, first show of the new year if you've made it this far thank you for listening and i'm sorry i got this one to y'all super late Uh, i haven't really had time this week to record but don't worry we will have a full show on tuesday assuming i can record on tuesday as well so don't worry you get the same amount of content but just at different times how interesting anyway there are of course this week lots of football topics to talk about and Those are elephants in the room right now, but I think we're going to warm up, actually, with some NBA talk. So, why don't we get to it? Here we go. Um, First, we're going to talk about the NBA replay system, because I know it was a long time ago, but Christmas Day, watched a lot of basketball, of course, and saw some things that intrigued me. Specifically, um, watched the Cavs-Warriors game. It was a lot of fun. It was an interesting game. Two really good teams, of course. Uh, I think it's their third time in a row playing on New Year's Day, for, or I mean Christmas Day, fourth time maybe. Um, but toward the end of the game, it was a little choppy because the, re- the uh, officials ordered multiple replays that kind of interrupted the flow of the game. And as per usual, uh, ESPN broadcaster Jeff Van Gundy spent the entire time they were reviewing anything complaining about the review system. And I thought some of those complaints were valid, some of them were less valid. So let's let's take a look at the replay system, and especially some of his main complaints in particular. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that seemingly obvious reviews take too long. That's one of everyone's biggest complaints about replay, because there are sometimes like these out-of-bounds calls, and they seem clear to viewers and broadcasters right away. It's like, okay, he touched it last, and then it takes minutes to determine, uh, to determine what, what happened. And they stare at the TV screen for four minutes when everyone in the arena knows who touched it last and everyone's just waiting to, to play again. However, the reason that this isn't as clear-cut as it may seem is because many times the refs have to spend more time in their review looking not only at the play and who touched it last, which they may have already made their mind up about just as quickly as we did, but also they have to look at the clock to see how much time is left because in a late-game situation, say, if someone knocks it out, if there's... seconds left or 0.3 seconds left is crucial because that determines what kind of shot you can take and all these other rules. And this is where tenths of seconds matter. Um, That's why they take so long. And I think a solution to this problem of refs um, taking too long to look at the time is you could have the refs communicate more because, look, you have three refs. They don't all need to look at and see if who touched it last. Like, one, one ref can do that. In fact, it might be better because you only have one person just focusing on this one thing instead of having them have to say, like, oh, you saw this, you saw this, you saw this. So why don't you have one ref watch the game, or maybe even two refs watch the game just to have a second pair of eyes, but then you could have one ref looking at the clock to say, the refs, the two refs over here can communicate and say, look, okay, uh, he touched it last now, and then the uh, ref off to the side can be observing them the whole time, also looking for something different, looking for when the ball goes out of bounds. That's how you can make it quicker, And you might only need two refs for this, and you could use that other ref for something I'll talk about later. And I think think this solution could work, because if you have these number of refs, they don't all need to be looking at one thing, so therefore you can have one focusing on, they can determine beforehand what they're looking for, which they probably already do, 
and then utilize, try to do this as fast as possible. And in, in the 2015-16 season, I observed that three-play center ruled on 72% of calls, not the main officials, and this is courtesy of the NBA. So another solution to this problem, and most problems that the replay uh, officials face, is to have the replay center begin to look at the play earlier and maybe tell the refs by the time they get to the monitors. Because if the replay center is making that decision anyway, you might as well tell the refs what you think it is when they come up so the refs don't have to go at it blind and maybe be quicker. And the replay center could have that moment that they think it is, like, right there. It really only takes 15 seconds, to, f or I think. I haven't been there, of course. But I, I, in my opinion, it only takes, like, 15 seconds to find the right spot when they, say, tipped it out of bounds. So I think you could do that as well to speed up the process. Another complaint is that replays, and I think this is an interesting one, replays give teams a free timeout. And I'm not sure many people think about this issue, but it's a very big one because, like, teams can meet uh, during these reviews, like, I think this is the one that Van Gundy complains about the most, is like, look, if, if you don't have any timeouts and the refs go to look at replay and they take five minutes, that's a free timeout. You can draw up a play, you can talk about schemes, you can give your team a pep talk. Um, but you, pre, you, you shouldn't be able to do that because if you used all your timeouts, like, what, what's the point? And in the Cavs-Warriors game, um, both teams met multiple times to draw up plays without having to burn their last timeout. They still had one left, and they could have used it then to, to draw up a play, but they didn't have to use it because the refs went to replay, and this is huge. And however, let, let's say they, both teams had a timeout in this case, but let's say the, the Cavs didn't have a timeout. Then that would mean the, they were essentially being gifted an extra timeout because they didn't have one, but they just they got a free one. So that's crucial in a late-game situation as well. So I think the solution to this problem is you just have to speed up the process uh, and also keep the players on the floor. So you can speed up the process, like I said, you know, use multiple officials, talk, talk more, more, more. But you can really, I, I don't think you need three refs looking at one replay. I think you can have two refs looking at one replay and then have one ref on the floor just wait, just, I don't know, people are like, yeah, I don't like the solution just because, like, it's like you're watching over, the, like, you're babysitting over the players, but I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I think you just have them, the refs, stand there and establish a line that says, look, if you cross this line, it's a technical foul, and that will, and that's a free free throw and ball, so I think that's going to really discourage players from from doing this, and and people are like, okay, so what if players and coaches, like, yell the play out to each other? I don't think it's the worst thing in the world either. In fact, there's some room for games, gamesmanship there because if they try to yell at each other across the line, that's okay because, A, they would be doing that anyway, right? Like, people, the, the players aren't just out there in a vacuum. You see coaches yelling plays to the players all the time, motioning the players, and the players yelling back and telling the coach stuff. And during free throws, the players go over and talk to the coaches about plays. So that's just part of the natural flow of the game. But also, I think this would be fun because if you had coaches and players trying to communicate with each other via sign language or yelling or whatever, this gives the other team the opportunity to try to steal those signals and figure out what, what the other team wants to do. So I think this could be a fun solution if you just have a ref standing at, say, um, at half court and you're watching players to not go past an extended like boundary of the key. Um, it would be kind of a not timeout timeout. So you can't totally fix this problem. Like You're going to have long reviews reviews it's kind of inevitable and sometimes these delays can be accounted for the fact that the refs just really want to get the call right uh, nonetheless I think this is a possible solution as well finally and uh, I know all of these have been pretty big issues but maybe the biggest issue is that not all plays are reviewable uh, like fouls for example you can't go back to the monitor and say oh I got this foul wrong this should be a foul uh, I didn't call it a foul I'm gonna call it a foul after the fact but I think you have to make 
you pretty much have to make all plays uh, officials reviewable in the last in the last two minutes because you see these things like I don't really get the last two minute report um, because it's 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 if you don't know what it is uh, the NBA just goes through all the games and they say what the refs got wrong in the last two minutes and I don't get the point of that because if if you're not providing a solution to helping the refs out and you're just throwing them under the bus with these last two minute reports who benefits from that. I mean, the fans benefit from that, from knowing what the refs got wrong and, like, they can feel more uh, righteous about stuff. But if you're not doing anything to fix the problem, what's the point? Because if you make all plays reviewable, that makes the last two minutes report uh, less needed. And also it helps protect your referees because at the end of the day, isn't that what replay is meant to do? Um, And then one more thing about, like, making all plays reviewable. The reason that fouls today, I'm guessing, aren't reviewable is because it's really subjective and it could lead to longer replays. But I think a solution to this, and I think all really all sports could implement this in their replay system, particularly in Major League Baseball, who's a pension for taking forever. Uh, the NFL's a little more established, but they still take a long time. Just put a cap on how much time the refs have. And if they can't make their decision in time, the call just stands, because you could say, oh, well, they could make the wrong call, they might realize something. But if you realize something, you're going to realize it right away. You're not going to realize it five minutes into your review. At that point, you're kind of just nitpicking, and the call's probably going to end up standing anyway. So why don't you just, in, in, in baseball too, why don't you say, okay, if you can't make your decision in a certain amount of time, the call is going to stand, and this is going to prevent your super long replays that really halt the flow of the game. Uh, so that is my talk on the NBA replay system. Let's get to some football. Uh, NFL wild card preview. Wow, I'm doing this in a rush. The first games are this afternoon, so get watching. Uh, first off, the Falcons at the Rams uh, in the NFC. Two great offenses. Both of these offenses are top 10 in the NFL. Uh, the Falcons with all their weapons on the perimeter, of course, Matty Ice, and the Rams with their young stars, Todd Gurley, uh, Jared Goff, uh, recently acquired Sammy Watkins. And I think rest is going to play a big part in this game because the Falcons are coming off a huge win over the Panthers to secure their playoff berth as the Seahawks won as well. But they really had to compete in that game. They really had to fight for every extra inch. And it was a really close game. But the Rams, meanwhile, were able to rest all of their stars, including Goff, Gurley, and Watkins, during Week 17. So I think they're going to they're gonna be more explosive. They're going to have more power initially, and also they'll have more stamina uh, going at the end of the game. Because, look, a football game is not a minor proposition. Like, playing an extra game is, is really significant, uh, especially on the wear and tear of bodies. You hear people uh, complaining about safety issues just because football is such a brutal sport. Uh, So I got the Rams by 11 in this one, 35-24. Next is the Panthers at the Saints. This game features more explosive offenses with Carolina's dual-threat QB, Cam Newton, of course, bringing that versatility to that offense coming from Auburn. Uh, A significant injury from this game, running back Jonathan Stewart was unavailable in the regular season finale against Atlanta, but he should be back for this wildcard game. So if he's not 100%, uh, Jonathan Stewart is not. Look for more usage of Christian McCaffrey as both a running back and a wide receiver. I really like McCaffrey out of Stanford coming out of the backfield and catching passes. Uh, fantasy owners, you know what I'm talking about. The Saints, meanwhile, were surprisingly beaten by the Bucks last week despite their explosive offense. Uh, the concern from that game, I think, was that Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram were held to 79 yards rushing. This is this tandem was a was a huge uh, huge twosome throughout the year with Kamara really coming to his own after Adrian Peterson's departure, and they're going up this this week against the third toughest rushing defense in Carolina. So they're going to need to really establish the run game early uh, if they want to beat 
Carolina because you're going to have to show early on that Ingram and Kamara can beat you. They're, they're not going to get held back by the Panthers' defense or at least get the running backs involved in the passing game, which they did uh, pretty well last week. Um, but you, you have to get those running backs involved somehow because that's the main core of your offense. They don't have any particularly huge wide receivers. Um, maybe Ted Ginn brings that flash uh, out of the side. I think he's playing this game. But you don't have any huge wide receivers, so it, you need to get those running backs involved through the Saints if you want to win. Also of note, this is a divisional matchup, which makes it extra fun because the Saints have swept the season series so far and the Panthers will be looking for revenge, but this is another home game for the Saints, so I think the Saints will win this one 31-27, but if there is an upset as far as seeding goes, like I think uh, this is a 4v5 matchup, uh, if there's an upset, I think it'll be here, maybe 3v6. Um, moving on to the AFC, we have the Bills and the Jaguars. These are two teams breaking super long playoff droughts. The Bills have been out of the playoffs since 1999, the Jaguars since 2007, and their young their young quarterbacks haven't really seen the bright lights, and I don't think either team will draw an advantage because neither team has that experience playing in huge games. I think from this one, the, the big story, of course, will be if LaShawn McCoy will play uh, on Monday. I haven't updated this in a while. He might be uh, There might be more on him now, but Coach Sean McDermott said there's a chance he would play. And if LaShawn McCoy is out in this one, it's huge. The Bills have very little chance to win because they really become, I don't want to say one-dimensional, but almost zero-dimensional because they're going to have to rely on Tyrod Taylor, who hasn't really done much. Uh, I mean, he's, he's gotten his team to the playoffs, but I mean, as far as big games, we haven't really seen him perform. And, I don't, and after getting rid of Sammy Watkins, they're relying on their running back, Mike Tolbert, who isn't as explosive as McCoy. He's not as good as McCoy. It's going to be tough for them. The Jaguars, meanwhile, struggled to end the year with losses to San Francisco and their division rivals, Tennessee. But the good thing about the Jacksonville Jaguars is that their defense will keep them in games, even if the offense struggles. Like, we've seen the defense uh, score all the Jaguars' points. And all Blake Bortles need to, needs to do is just handle the ball, rely on the run game with Leonard Fournette, who's been um, perhaps a little bit under the radar after the hype that surrounded him in the draft. Uh, really good running back this year. And that phenomenal defense, especially defensive line, that can pressure quarterbacks and get forced turnovers. Um, and also, particularly against this Bills team, who, if without LaShawn McCoy, especially will not have the strongest of offenses, I wouldn't be surprised if the Jags' defense is going to score in this game, even multiple touchdowns. And with that, I have the Jaguars in this game. As you can see, I'm a pretty chalky guy, uh, winning this one in a low-scoring affair, 20-15. to uh, the next game is, the, and the final game for Wild Card Weekend, this should be a fun one, the Titans and the Chiefs. Now, Chiefs had a weird season. Uh, they went, they started the year, I believe it was 6-1, and 5-1, one, and, one, and then they went 1-5, and five, and now they finished the season with four straight wins uh, and to finish 10-6. and six. And I think a big key, a huge key, of course, to the Chiefs going on this winning streak is Kareem Hunt, who has rediscovered his groove, averaging 121 yards, from week 14 through 16, and he and Tyreek Hill really provide that speed that makes their offense so deadly. They can make a big play at any time. They're super explosive, and uh, I really like that squad. Meanwhile, the Titans kind of limped into the playoffs, just barely squeaking by the Jaguars, who are a playoff team, as we saw, but not the strongest one. But nonetheless, the playoffs are a new animal, and we've seen the Chiefs struggle before, so it's not like the Titans are, are totally out of this one right away. 
Nah, despite all of that, uh, I still have the Chiefs winning this game on Wild Card Weekend. 27-13. So that's your preview of the Wild Card. And let's now go to the biggest story of the weekend, probably. College football. Yeah. Um, let's first of all, for, for college football talking about it, let's give some shout-outs for some minor bowl games. Uh, first, I want to give a shout-out to Florida Atlantic University winning the Cherubundi Tart Cherry Boca Raton Bowl. I kind of just wanted to say the name of this bowl because it's a fun bowl and really is, is long, very, very long. Um, but also, Lane Kiffin has turned this program around uh, winning, I think it was 10 games this year, and it's really good to see him find success in a small market because he's been in the big markets all of his life and has found some controversy in them, but it's nice to see him winning here. Uh, also, another college football team to shout out, Army, uh, in the, winning the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl over San Diego State. The Army finishes with 10 wins just a few years after winning two, a nice comeback story. And they haven't lost their identity amidst all this winning. They're finding success with the run game, just like the rivals Navy, and that's what they want to do. They had 440 rush yards in this bowl game and just six passing yards. It's kind of unheard of in this game with the pass yards being the flashy plays, but they really play smash-mouth football like all of these other military teams. Uh, Another shout-out to UCF. University of Central Florida winning the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl over a a near-playoff team in Auburn, completing their perfect season going 13-0, remarkable. And this is another big turnaround team. They went 0 and, UCF went 0-12 in 2015, but now Scott Frost comes in, turns them back, they get 13 wins and win a New Year's Six Bowl game. Wow. And this is a big boost for the American Conference because around after this game, UCF is parading around like, we're national champions! And, and they want the American Conference to be considered a Power Six conference, or now uh, a major conference, so that they have a higher chance to get in a bowl game. That's not going to happen. The American Conference does not have the up-to-down strength of some of these power conferences, even like the Pac-12, who really did horrible this bowl season, but they are not really nearly as good as the Pac-12. But they did, and they did, def- but they did defeat a near playoff team, as I said. So that's a boost still for their conference, and might we might see some tougher scheduling on that front. Now let's get to the college football playoff. Wow, I spent all of this Saturday just like watching football. It was so much fun. Or no, it was a Monday. Never mind. Um, but first of all, a classic. For the second straight year, actually, in the Rose Bowl last year was the Penn State-USC 52-49 game, which was thrilling to watch. This one was thrilling as well. Georgia beat Oklahoma 54-48 to in double overtime. Now, this was Georgia and Oklahoma's first ever meeting, which, and I hope these two teams can play more. Let's see them schedule each other. But this was a crazy game throughout. It's like Oklahoma's offense shot out of the gate early, but then Georgia had some one-play drives to get the momentum back, and the second half was back and forth. And both defenses actually came to play in the second half after giving up a combined uh, 48 points in the first half. Georgia had a pick six. Oklahoma had a scoop and score on a fumble. Just a crazy game. And this is the first overtime in Rose Bowl history, which is pretty remarkable considering the Rose Bowl is the longest, I believe, the longest tenured bowl uh, in bowl history. Uh, and this was the first overtime in the, hist- the over 100-year history of that bowl. And at the end of the day, this game came down to the Oklahoma offenses, who had been lauded all year and throughout the first half for their phenomenal play, but they couldn't come through in crunch time. They only converted, I believe it was one, maybe two first downs in the second half and overtime, which is pretty remarkable considering the explosiveness of that offense. And they had multiple chances, oh, that was on third down, by the way. Uh, And they had multiple chances to win this game. I mean, 
even the uh, even before overtime. Baker Mayfield missed a throw on third and two with less than a minute left that probably would have put them in field goal range. It was a tough throw. It was a little wheel route, I think, but it's still it's still a makeable throw. And if he makes that throw, I think Oklahoma wins. And also they couldn't get in the end zone after the first overtime after Georgia kicked a field goal. You go on the field after Georgia kicks a field goal. It's like 48-45 at this point. You know if we score a touchdown, we win this game. And yet they couldn't do it. So that's not an insignificant, uh, not a choke, but just you you got you to gotta score in that, at that point if you're Oklahoma. And the Georgia defense on the other side of the ball really pulled it together after their horrible first half. They only gave up one offensive touchdown in the second half in overtime. The other one was the scoop and score. And they came up with a blocked field goal in double overtime that pretty much ended the game. And this was their identity all along. They had blocked a field goal in the SEC championship game against Auburn. That was a big part of them winning that one. And blocked field goals are just huge because it's a gigantic momentum swing. Because look, if you're going to kick a field goal, you're about to put points on the board. That's not easy to do in football, especially in these Power 5 matchups, SEC Big 12. Uh, it's and Especially if you're playing in SEC defense, it's really hard to put up points, even though they did in this game. But just blocking a field goal is huge because it pumps up your entire team. And the Georgia defense, I think, looked more physical in the second half. They really prevented big plays. And that's going to be interesting in the college football championship because they won't face... As explosive of an offense, Alabama's not the best offense as we saw during their uh, play at semifinal, but it's still a big confidence boost uh, for Georgia. It is a big confidence boost to get, get together in the second half. And also on the offensive side for Georgia, their veteran running backs really came into play, helping out their freshman quarterback, Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb, combined for six total touchdowns. And this really helped with uh, Fromm's lack of experience. It kind of took a lot of the burden off him allowing him to really feel more comfortable in this game. And their diversity, uh, as far as their offense goes, where you have Fromm, who didn't have a bad game. He didn't really turn the ball over much, and that's it's like Blake Bortles in the NFL. That's all you really need to do. You have a strong running game. You have a really strong defense. So all you need to do is just play good enough. And that's exactly what he did in this game. And it's going to be tough for him to not uh, create any turnovers throwing the ball against this Alabama defense that he's about to face. But nonetheless, I think their running backs... And the running game, as long as they don't turn the ball over, uh, they, 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 they can really hang in there against Alabama, especially being another SEC uh, team playing a similar style of football. The next game that was on this weekend was the Sugar Bowl, where Alabama, Alabama excuse me, beat Clemson 24-6. to Jeez. Uh, especially watching this game right after the Rose Bowl, which was the shootout to end all shootouts. This was just a humongous contrast. Uh, being such a low-scoring game as it was, even Alabama, like their their score is kind of misleading. Uh, this was the third part. It was a fun one of the so-called trilogy, however. Uh, in contrast to the Rose Bowl, where uh, Georgia and Oklahoma had never met, and Bama and Clemson met in the two previous championship games. So just this this could have been a title game in itself. And like I said, this was a game marked by defense, not offense. It was, it was kind of weird to watch. Um, but Alabama's defense, it's kind of hard to to say how dominant they were. I mean, you can see the six on the scoreboard and say, look, they played a really good defensive game. But that doesn't really say the ex- or illustrate the extent of their domination. They held Clemson to 188 total yards. Jeez, that's that's very, very small. <laughs> and just to put some, put some perspective on it, that was a season low for Clemson by nearly 100 yards. 100 yards. Jeez, I think their their next highest was like 281 total yards. Holding under holding a team to under 200 points in college football, especially an offense like Clemson that that brought them to the national or the college football playoff, just showed how dominant Alabama was. 
And they also gave Kelly Bryant some of the reason they only had 188 total yards. This Clemson had no opportunity to get big plays because they pressured Kelly Bryant all night, the quarterback for Clemson. So if you can't let your wide receivers get deep, if you can't let him escape and create big plays, which is what these running quarterbacks like to do, like Deshaun Watson, who tore him up last year, they, you give them no room to operate, that you, they can't do anything. And Alabama's defense was boosted by their return of some defensive starters like Mac Wilson. Well, he was hurt for much of the regular season, and he wasn't really feeling that good for a while. But this rest that Alabama got it before this bowl allowed him to recover, and he had a pick six in this game, so he was huge. Uh, they also made timely stops to keep their momentum, like Clem- uh, Clemson had the ball. They were down 10-3. to They had just forced a turnover in Alabama, and they looked to score and tie this game up. But Alabama held Clemson. I think it was to a three-and-out and a field goal. I know it was a field goal. And that, that's crucial because you keep the lead and you keep the momentum on your side. And even as the Alabama offense struggled, there were three and outs galore in this game. But Alabama's uh, defense kept Clemson off the board, allowing the offense to still feel more confident and never to get too down and to stay, uh, stay good for this game. And this proves that the, re- the committee really made the right choice with Alabama. Ohio State beat USC in a similar defensive dominant fashion. So in order for Alabama to really affirm the committee's decision, they had to do get this kind of defensive low-scoring victory, and that's exactly what they did. And I think on Selection Sunday, we talked, or talking about Selection Sunday, we talked about uh, the committee choosing the best versus the most deserving. And I think that the quality of this Alabama team, the fact that they just dominated this Clemson team throughout, this might have to do with the matchup. They've played them multiple times, but nonetheless... It shows that it is good for the committee to choose the best team, not the most deserving, because you get the rightful champion. I know it's, it's a very impossible practice in college football, but they, you, they did pick the right champion in this case, or the right fourth seed in this case. Now let's, uh, oh no, never mind, let's go back to it. Uh, Alabama's offense did struggle in this game. They only had 261 yards of total offense themselves, which is not good. And on their scores, they benefited from great field position, and they had many opportunities to score with the defense forcing turnovers and punts from deep in Clemson's end and all that. And they're going to need to do better next week because we've seen how strong Georgia's offense can be. I know Alabama's defense is really good and might hold Georgia to fewer points, kind of like a uh, Sugar Bowl-like performance. But nonetheless, the offense needs to come through in this game. So let's preview the national championship game a little bit. It's an all-SEC matchup. A lot of people don't like that. And it's only the second time in the modern bowl era, which is 1991 to now, that two teams from the same conference meet in the national championship. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's, it's good that you really did get two of the best teams in the country, if not the two best teams. And that's what the playoff is all about. And I think it's an interesting for the SEC because people are like, oh, the SEC is still too good. But the dominance of these couple of teams, Bama, UGA, Auburn, makes the SEC seem like a deep conference, but it's really not. Because... The next teams below them are like Kentucky and South Carolina, and, and then at the bottom you have like Tennessee and, and Vanderbilt, these teams that are really not good, and Texas A&M who had a bad year after starting off strong. So it, it hides the mediocrity of the rest of the conference this year and allows the SEC to retain its identity as maybe the hardest conference in football, even though that tide is starting to turn with the rise of these strong Big Ten teams from top to bottom, like Penn State, Michigan State, Ohio State, uh, Michigan, and then Northwestern coming into its own this year. So I think the Big Ten might be taking that thing or taking that uh, throne, but the SEC with these this, this playoff status still maintains its reputation. 
And we're probably going to see a rough defensive game in this championship game. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like 21 to 14 or something because if if Bama's defense is able to show up in this game, uh they they're the Georgia's done. Like if Bama puts on the same performance they put on in the Sugar Bowl, Georgia's done. They have no chance. I know Georgia has a strong running game, but Bama's defense is just so dominant and they fly around the field and they have a tough front seven. So it'll be really tough for Georgia. But this game can open up. I don't really see that happening. But if Bama's defense fails to show up, whether that be they're exhausted or they're just too confident, I don't think a Nick Saban team will have that happen. Led team will have that happen to them. But it, it could happen. We don't know. But I could, you, there, this game could open up if Georgia's run game is able to get flowing and Jalen Hurts uh, decides to play a little better than he did this week. Now, that was a lot of college football talk. So why don't we get to the quick take? Here we go. Uh, oh, yeah. This uh, ugly Patriots article that came out uh, on ESPN, it's really interesting. I've had people ask me, like, do you believe it? Like, what do you, what do you think about this article, which basically said Tom Brady didn't want or wanted Jimmy Garoppolo to be traded and these rifts between Robert Kraft, the uh, Patriots owner, and Bill Belichick, the coach, and Brady himself about, like, a power struggle and who's going to come out on top. Uh I, I don't I think this article is it has to be at least partly true. Look, I've seen people use this as an opportunity to take shots at ESPN. It's like a failing network or whatever. But uh, ESPN has integrity. Like they have integrity there. And Seth Wickersham is an established reporter. He's not some indie guy coming out of the blue. Like he, the guy who wrote this article, he's a he's a well known reporter, and he's he's not gonna just write scandalous things about the Patriots for no reason if there's not some basis in fact. I think like any um, like any news outlet, they're going to want to make this article seem attractive. And I'll admit I haven't really read the full article yet, but I've read parts of it here and there. And I think it has to, it's mostly true. Um, I don't know how much of it is true and how much of it is false, um, or at least how much of it is misleading. I don't think any of it is false. But I think it's important to, in an age of increasing political polarization, to maintain some faith in the news media, especially in something, including in as something as trivial as sport. But I think the Patriots will be fine from this. I mean, everyone uh, tries to get at the Patriots every year. No one is successful. And uh, if this is just an expo- expose piece, a one-off expose piece, um, it's well done. But... Uh, the Patriots will be fine. They're just going to continue to focus on the playoffs, and we'll see how this ends up playing out in the offseason. Uh, I think Brady can play for another at least couple more years. So not the biggest deal. Um, Jimmy Garoppolo's tearing it up in San Francisco. Uh, but anyway, that was a quick take. So thank you so much for listening to The Wong Takes. You can check us out on all the links. Subscribe on Apple podcast and go to the website bit.ly slash the long takes go to the patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the long takes go to the long takes at gmail.com email us send us questions comments concerns uh rate the podcast on itunes and google play hey look we've gone over 31 minutes i it's probably the longest episode of the long takes yet thank you so much for listening and i will see you hopefully on tuesday probably with hopefully a full show